Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. In July of 2014, the Civil War really sort of kicked off on the 13th, and that started again with a rocket attack against Tripoli International Airport. And we were very close to to the airport, so the chance of being hit was quite high, and there were hundreds of rockets being launched every day. My boss sort of gave this briefing and let us know that we were going to be evacuating. That kicked off the destruction. And that's when we really started, um, you know, burning everything, kind of like in the movies, right? Um, <laughs> treading and burning and um, putting nails through hard drives and that kind of thing. You wrote that getting through the first checkpoint was the most dangerous part of the evacuation. So to go south through that route, one of the reasons that it was not our first choice was because part of it was through hostile territory. So it was this other tribe that had been really supportive of Qaddafi and did not appreciate the U.S. intervention during the Arab Spring. I knew every single one of those security officers would die to keep me safe. And I knew that they felt the same way about me and that I would do that for them as well. So I think that, you know, confidence in each other really was a big part in what made it a successful operation. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 
Sarah Carlson served as an analyst in the Central Intelligence Agency's Counterterrorism Center, where she specialized in threats directed against the United States and Europe. Sarah has just written a terrific book titled In the Dark of War, A CIA Officer's Inside Account of the U.S. Evacuation from Libya. Sarah recently sat down with us to talk about her book as part of our series of episodes on real-life spy stories. I'm Micah Morrell, and this is an episode of Intelligence Matters Declassified, Spy Stories from the Officers Who Were There. Sarah, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on our show, and it's great to have you on as part of our series on spy stories. I should mention that you've actually chronicled the story that we're going to talk about in a book, In the Dark of War. And it's a book I think that everybody is going to want to read because it is absolutely terrific. So great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here right now and appreciate the invitation. So Sarah, I think the place to start is actually with you yourself. Kind of, kind of briefly, how did you end up at CIA and how did you end up doing counterterrorism at CIA? So I was an intern in college actually for emergency management and 9-11 happened my senior year while I was interning. So I had a chance to um, respond to those terrorist attacks in a, you know, kind of a different capacity back then. But at the time, I knew I wanted to do something more, something at the national level. So I applied to the Defense Intelligence Agency and was recruited by them. So I actually started with DIA. And I worked for them for about five years before I went to CIA. Um, but I did counterterrorism the whole time. So I think I have about 12 and a half years um, total, and it was all counterterrorism. And I, I did that. I really wanted to work counterterrorism because of the 9-11 attacks. It was something I, you know, developed a passion for. and was really dedicated and this sort of sense of protecting our country, um, our families. That was really important to me. And then how did you end up working full-time in Libya? So I applied for the um, analyst position there in 2012, shortly before the Benghazi attacks. So they happened after I was already selected and slated to go there. And I was in language training at the time. Um, I decided that I still wanted to go, that it was you know, really important to find out as much information as we could on the group and what they might be planning next. So finished the language training and then I got to Tripoli in July of 2013. And I knew counterterrorism was going to be a big focus there because of the Benghazi attacks. But also the reason I had applied was because um, in the document exploitation we found during the raid against Osama bin Laden, we actually found some information that they were interested in using Libya as a base of operations to conduct attacks against Europe. So I knew that was going to be a major focus, and that was really the impetus behind my um, decision to apply. So you get there in the summer of 2013. You're supposed to stay for a year. What's your job day in and day out? What is a typical day? What did a typical day look like for you in Tripoli? A typical day for me was 
starting very early. So I woke um, pretty early in the morning to be one of the first people into the office. I was really dedicated to finding out as much as I could and being that subject matter expert on Libya and everything that was happening in the country. Um, My boss at the time used to uh, find me at some point every morning and ask me, you know, what's going on in Libya today? And I needed to have a ready answer to that question. So literally from the time I got up in the morning until I went to bed at night, I was reading intelligence reports or giving briefings or, you know, skimming social media pages. So I actually spent a lot of, a lot more time, I think, than people would expect looking at things like Twitter. I would go through and look for information, you know, it usually posted first in Arabic and then later in English. So I just skim the Arabic for any sort of that tactical level thing that we might need to know um, for security, for our operations for the day. So I'd review that first and sort of keep an eye on it throughout the day. And and of course, uh, once a week, I would do the intelligence briefing for the ambassador and the country team. So a lot of um, my day was focused around that briefing and getting getting that ready. So tell us um, one of the one of the great stories in the book is about a bonfire that you all had on the night of September eleventh, two thousand thirteen. Can you tell us about that? That was the one year anniversary of the attacks and the attacks on Benghazi. Yeah. Yes. The um sorry the attacks on Benghazi. So that night, I mean, it was just, it was September, so it was still quite warm in Libya. But we had a bonfire and all sat around. Um, several people who had been in Benghazi that night were still in Tripoli um, at that time, including um, the team leader of the security officers. So he um, said some words about the attacks and what happened, and we listened to Amazing Grace. And I think it was a really good time for people to reflect on what happened um, and really kind of dedicate ourselves to making sure it didn't happen again. We had um, stars that we had engraved in and put on the wall in the in the compound facility. And it was um, really important that we remember our colleagues that night. Just to, just to remind the listeners, um, there were four Americans killed in Benghazi that night, two State Department officers and two CIA officers. So, Sarah, what did the threat landscape look like when you arrived in Tripoli in the summer of 2013? And how did it evolve over the year? I think throughout the year, it certainly became more hostile. Um, When I arrived in 2013, I think we had um, a bit more sympathy towards us, um, especially after the attacks in Benghazi. Um, I think the local Libyans understood why we were there. They wanted our help. There was a lot of outreach to us. Um, And I was monitoring the terrorist group. That was the main focus. But I was also monitoring the stability of the country. And a large focus of that was on the militias. So the militias were actually a really huge concern because um, a lot of them sort of had antipathy towards each other and um, had been at odds during the Arab Spring and the revolution. And so that was a really big part of what I did there is monitor what those militias were doing. And as we progressed through the year, the divide between them deepened significantly. Um, Throughout the year, the 
it ended up sort of evolving into two pretty distinct sides. And then those sides, once they were at odds, that's when the Civil War started. So at the beginning, there wasn't really one group that could take and hold power. So they could probably take power, but there was enough of a balance that um, the other sides wouldn't let them. There was more than just one opposing force. But once that really became entrenched, that's when things really shifted. So Sarah, essentially the Civil War is closing in on you, correct? It's closing in on Tripoli as the year goes on. Yes, it was closing in on us. The um, One of the militias that w- played a key role in the Civil War, we were on their land. So we were actually contracting with them to provide our outer security. So their um, relationship with the other militias and their relationship with the terrorist groups was a, a major focus in mine. I didn't believe at the time that they sympathized with the terrorists, but we were still really concerned that Ansar al-Sharia, the group that conducted the Benghazi attacks, would use some of that conflict as cover to come and attack us. And that was something that was constantly on our minds is preventing another attack like that. And actually in the in the spring of 2014, you and your colleagues found yourself under rocket attack. What was what happened and what was that like? This is the first use of rockets since the revolution and it was not expected. So I remember um, I was still in bed and the barrage of rockets came in and we weren't sure. Like I, I had no idea if we were being targeted, if, if those rockets were meant to hit our compound or not. Um, they were close. I could hear them. It shook the windows and, you know, jumped out of bed, grabbed my shoes, grabbed my iPad, my Glock, ran down to the bunker. So I remember sitting in this, you know, tight bunker listening for any hint of additional rocket attacks. Um, the code red call went out and then just like skimming through the social media pages until we could try to figure out what was going on when people were making calls, trying to figure out um, where they hit, um, if, if they were being, again, if they were being directed at us. We were able to find out um, where they landed and still think um, they were probably being fired at one of the Zintan compounds. So that was the, the tribe of the militia on the land on which we sat. So we think that was the first attack against that militia. It's just that the compound happened to be really close to where their compound was. So Washington's first response to the rising threat situation in Tripoli was something called a partial drawdown. Tell folks what that means, Sarah, and tell folks why you were not part of that. The partial drawdown came in May after another round of rockets hit. So the one in April was the first time, and then it happened again the next month. Um, So the partial drawdown means that the non-essential personnel were um, sent back home. So I know that probably sounds weird because everybody in a war zone type situation would be essential, but um, anyone who was sort of getting close to the end of their um, assignment or who could do sort of the bulk of their work back um, in DC, they were um, sent back. So I was not, I was designated emergency essential. Uh, My boss and the ambassador wanted me to stay 
and provide the intelligence briefing. So I ended up briefing almost almost every day. So at first it had been sort of this primarily one briefing a week for the ambassador. And I realized there was a gap that we needed to be providing that information to sort of the Marines that were on our compound and then our security officers and as well as the other officers who were, um, who were there. So I started doing a daily intelligence briefing after that partial drawdown and it was open to everybody. Anybody could come. And I provided a lot of like pretty granular tactical level intelligence on, um, like really specific, like neighborhoods or groups or tactics that were being employed. That included things like, um, sort of wave of kidnapping, kidnappings that happened and, and how those were conducted, because that was a, a big concern that we had. Yeah. And I remember from your book that during that time, your your mom was not doing so well from a health perspective, which must have made this whole thing harder on you to be so far away from her. It, it was quite difficult. My mom um, is disabled, and so um, she was just going through a particularly bad spell. And I think you know people often forget about the effect it has on family. So I'm quite close to my mom. And I think it was really hard for her to know I was in this dangerous situation. And and I always told her, so she knew exactly where I was and what I was doing. But she wasn't able to talk to anybody else about that. And, um, you know, she's out here in the Seattle area and um, really didn't have anybody that could relate, even if she could talk to them. Mm-hmm. So it, that was quite difficult, I think. So Sarah, when did you first hear discussion about a possible evacuation of all U.S. personnel from Libya? And tell us about that day and, and, and about how you and your colleagues heard about the decision to leave. So the discussion didn't actually start until quite late. Um, in July of 2014, the Civil War really sort of kicked off on the 13th, and that started again with a rocket attack against Tripoli International Airport. And we were very close to to the airport, so um, the chance of being hit was quite high, and there were hundreds of rockets being launched every day and anti-aircraft artillery, and um, eventually there was like a car bomb and a suicide bombing. So the threat was very high. There was one day where I went over to the embassy and we were talking about potential options for evacuation. But at that point, the ambassador really wanted to stay the course in Libya. Um, so the administration didn't want to feel like it had failed there, that they couldn't lose it. So I had gone over there to talk about it, but it was more in general terms. And that day when I was there, it was during this fighting and that was the first day we actually started getting hit. So the um, again, the code red alarm went off, and you know could hear the, um, the rockets and the bombs going off around us. And then we heard um, the Marines talking about it that we were actually the compound, um, the embassy facility was getting hit with these bombs. And so I ended up having to call a militia commander um, and talk to him in Arabic while all this was happening, and ask them if they could help stop. Um, the fighting around the embassy. So it was pretty fortunate that um, my Arabic was good enough that he understood what I was asking. But that was really kind of the turning point and the day that um, we started looking at evacuation 
option, evacuation options um, in earnest. The day that we heard about the final decision, I was not involved in the briefing. That was um, with the ambassador and my boss. And then they were on a call to Washington, D.C. And it was during that call that the decision was made. So we were called into the office um, shortly after that call. So it was in all hands with everybody on the compound. And my boss sort of gave this briefing and let us know that we were going to be evacuating. He said that we were going to take the southern route and kind of described in general terms what we were going to do. And then that kicked off the destruction. And that's when we really started, um, you know, burning everything, kind of like in the movies, right? Um, (laughs) Treading and burning and um, putting nails through hard drives and that kind of thing. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Sarah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So Sarah, you guys get the word that you're going to leave and you have to destroy anything that is classified or anything that would identify Americans, et cetera, et cetera. But you had an additional job, right? You had to, you had to not only do all that, but you had to produce sit reps for Washington. Talk about that a little bit. Yes. While I was in the process of helping with the destruction, I also needed to be staying up to date on what was going on in Libya and providing reports on that. So I was still doing that daily intelligence briefing, um, letting everybody know what was going on. Um, and then writing back cables to Washington um, and reaching out to, you know, like the analysts at CIA headquarters. Um, i not hourly, but almost hourly. Like they were in really close contact with me and trying to assess the situation, assess the security, um, how long we had, what our progress was like. So um, they were really concerned about sort of the status of forces and how how we were doing, how close we were to the fighting. And we ended up getting surrounded. So the opposing militia uh, was really surrounding the Zintan, but because we were on their land, they were in essence surrounding us as well and then kind of tightening the noose. So we knew we needed to get out as soon as possible. So one of the things I'll tell my listeners, we won't go into it now, but I'll tell my listeners that I think it's absolutely fascinating to read how Sarah actually put these sit reps together, how uh, what information she brought together, who she talked to, I think that's absolutely fascinating. And uh, if you want to know that, you'll have to go read the book, which I think you should do. So Sarah, what was the departure route? How were you all going to get out of Libya? You talked about the Southern route. Yes, we ended up deciding to do um, the Southern route. That was the ambassador's decision. So we had looked at a variety of options. Um, The coastal road was sort of the most apparent one that we could drive through Tripoli and then sort of go up and over to Tunisia, um, passing Sabratha. 
The problem with that is that we had had a security incident the December before where we had actually had some military members held hostage at a checkpoint in Saratha along that coastal road. So we knew we couldn't use it again. There had also been an incident with the Russian embassy where they used that to evacuate pretty early on and then ended up coming back. So we knew that road was not a good option, that they were looking for Americans along that road. We couldn't go the other direction and go east because, of course, that's where Benghazi was. We couldn't um, drive through Tripoli. Um, aircraft could not land, so the U.S. military could not uh, land like a helicopter or Osprey or um, use the runway to bring in a larger plane because there was so much anti-aircraft artillery being used and the, and the rockets that um, they just deemed it unsafe for them to um, fly in Tripoli airspace. So we knew we had to drive. So then it came down to um, whether we drove to another location to be picked up in a transport. So that was um, something that we were looking at even the day that we were notified about the evacuation, we had sent a security team down to assess whether that was a viable option. And then ultimately, the ambassador made the decision that we were going to use the southern route. So it went pretty far south from Tripoli and then and then down and around and up and over to Tunisia. So we entered southern Tunisia. So Sarah, when, when you all departed, you were in the front right seat of one of the many vehicles. What's the significance of being in that seat and how did you how did you feel about that at the time? The front right seat was considered the tactical commander. And I kind of joke that I might be the only CIA analyst in history to be a tactical commander <laughs> during an emergency operation. Um, it was quite intimidating. Except I, on TV. Happens all the time. Right. <laughs> but in real life not. <laughs> not so much in real life. Um so it was again another like movie moment. Like, really, I'm gonna I'm gonna be in that position. So then, with the convoy, the way it was divided up um, into these sections, or what we called chocks, and the sort of the lead vehicle and the follow vehicle had security officers driving and in the right seat as a tactical commander. And our security officers that were filling these positions were all former special operations of some type or another. And then there was me. And so it was really quite difficult for me to reconcile like why they chose me for that position. Um, on the one hand, it was terrifying. And on the other hand, it was, you know, really flattering that they thought I could do that. And I did. It was significant because that person in that position was responsible for the safety of the other occupants of the vehicle. So if we were ambushed, if we came under attack, um, the driver, who was our special operations forces representative, and I would um, respond. So he would be responsible for the vehicle and using the vehicle to, um, you know, get off the X or get away from the situation as quickly as possible. If we had to bail out of the vehicle, then he would engage in the fight to um, provide protection. And then I would be responsible to get the two other people in our vehicle to safety. And then we were working together as, as a section or as a chalk. So I would also be responsible to try to get um, the other people in the other vehicles to come with us and to keep them safe. So Sarah, I know you were nervous about being in that seat. And I know that you had a 
long conversation the night before the departure with your friend Nomad. How important was that conversation to you, getting you ready for that job? It was really important to help me sort of calm my mind about what was happening. I think it was quite scary, but I didn't have time to really feel that fear because I had so much to do. And so being presented with this role and this this huge responsibility, um, I just needed to be able to talk through it and find out like, why, why would they pick me? And so to hear him say, you know, that they wanted me in that position that, you know, I thought, well, we just didn't have enough security. Um, Again, it feels like history repeating in a way, but it helped to hear from him that that the security officers trusted me, that um, they had a lot of confidence in me, I think, because I'd been working on developing that um, professional relationship over the past year where I would be sort of in their team room um, almost every day, letting them know what the threats were, what the security was going on, situation was like. And so I think that um, really built a lot of respect um, between us and helped that day. But there's still like this moment where um, I was getting a briefing from them on the responsibility and they started talking about like grenades in the glove box. I'm like, who has (laughs) grenades in the glove box, right? Yeah. So Sarah, you wrote that getting through the first checkpoint was the most dangerous part of the evacuation. Why and why was that the case and how did that go? So to go south through that route, one of the reasons that it was not the most, um, it was not our first choice was because part of it was through hostile territory. So it was this other tribe that had been really supportive of Qaddafi and did not appreciate the U.S. intervention during the Arab Spring. So um, they were um, aligned with the Zintan. So that helped because we were on their territory and this was the only way to get out to um the mountains where we needed to go. So that first checkpoint, um, Nomad um, actually led the convoy. So he was in the first vehicle. Um, he, he was my close friend and um, captain who was um, I also mentioned a few times in the book. So they led that first vehicle. And when they got to that checkpoint, they actually had to get out and talk to the militia commander and sort of um, get in his good graces quickly enough that we could um, sort of sail through that first checkpoint. And it actually took quite a long time. I mentioned before that the um, vehicles were divided up into sections. So there were large chunks of time between each section so that if one was ambushed, the others could go a different way. So everything just took a lot more time than we anticipated it would. Um, Getting through that first checkpoint you think like, oh, it's only a half hour drive, but it actually took quite a long time to get through even just that one checkpoint where, you know, I got there and I, I was in the front seat. So I covered my hair, even though, um, like I maybe didn't have to, I just didn't want to draw extra attention because I was the only woman, um, serving in that role. So I was the only woman who was in the front seat. Um, so I pulled out my scarf, covered my hair and, um, you know, I was watching for them as we went through and I could see, you know, captain talking to the militia commander and then sort of saw Nomad at this side of the road. Um, you know, you just look at them and they look so casual, um, but you know they're ready to like spring into action to protect you as soon as anything would happen. And 
And that I think is where that mutual respect really helped too. Like I, I knew every single one of those security officers would die to keep me safe. And I knew that they felt the same way about me and that I would do that for them as well. So I think that, you know, confidence in each other really was a big part in what made this, um, made it a successful operation. And then once you guys were all through the first checkpoint, then Nomad and Captain followed up and they were at the back of the convoy at that point, right? Yes. So it was sort of the most dangerous parts um, all the way through, right? So the first vehicle that went out of the gate would be the first one to hit the ambush. So they had that role. And, um, you know, that was, again, one of the more terrifying moments is like waiting to pull out of that front gate and knowing that there could be anything on the other side of it. And of course, during this whole time, there's still like the the bombings and the attacks going on, right? So you could still hear the rocket fire and the small arms fire and the heavy weapons. Um, so once they got through that checkpoint, then they they brought up the rear. So again, that's the most dangerous part. Um, once word starts getting out that we're evacuating, because that puts them in the last position where if somebody were going to chase us, they would mm-hmm. be the ones that they encountered first. Sarah, you guys go through two more checkpoints safely. Um, and I'm just wondering what was, and, and, and you talk about this in the book, but I'm wondering for our listeners, what was the conversation like in the car, given the stress you were under? What was that like? Honestly, it was sort of just nonsense, right? Like we needed to keep our attention on the road and looking out for threats. We were ready to call them out. Um, So just like the constant scanning of outside and what was going on. But, you know, can't maintain that kind of intensity for hours and hours and hours. So we ended up, um, we would play some music. We talked a lot about music, a lot about music. And then um, one of the other people in my car was our, the National Security Agency, the NSA representative. And he was a huge music fan too. So um, we chatted about that quite a bit. Um, Food. I feel like anybody who's ever deployed anywhere, that's like a major topic of conversation, like what your first meal is going to be when you get back. So it was sort of um, nothing heavy, nothing um, to distract from what we needed to be doing, but just just enough to kind of help calm the nerves a little bit and talk through some things. We talked a little bit about you know different sections of the route and what we could expect. There was one part that went through the mountains, the Jabal Nufusa. And um, that had like some pretty sharp switchbacks going through it. And it was sort of this rocky terrain. And, um, you know, that was a really high risk area, but we didn't really have a lot of information on what was out there. So, um, you know, there are things like that where we talked about along the way, um, the next step and what might happen. So tell us, Sarah, about crossing the border into Tunisia. What was, was that like? Just a huge sense of relief that we made it. It was, um, we got to the border and the Libyan side was just so run down and it looked like, you know, it didn't really have much use that um, everything had been sort of neglected. Um, you could kind of make out the sign that said Libya, um, Libya Haria for Libya Free, which was like the slogan during the revolution. Um, there are a couple of border guards there, but um, it was pretty wide open. There wasn't really much of a presence. So we 
had to get our passports stamped um, there at the Libya side of the border. And then we went over to the Tunisian side. It was like polar opposite, um, heavily guarded. Um, they took all our passports. So we actually just handed them all over and then they went through the process of stamping them and giving them back later. You know, it was, it was quite the contrast. Um, personally, my favorite part about the, uh, Tunisian side was that they had a bathroom. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it was like hours into it. And so I want to say it was probably like eight hours until we got to that point. And, um, little did we know we had so much more to go, but, um, you know, at that point I was pretty desperate to see the bathroom, but we ended up waiting quite a long time at the border crossing, um, for all the vehicles to get there. Um, one of them had broken down and it had to be towed. And so it took several hours just waiting there at the border crossing. And you were also waiting for Nomad, uh, to come across the border, right? Cause he was in that last vehicle. Yes. He was in that last vehicle and it was like crazy hot. I remember getting out of the vehicle and just wanting like some water. Um, the thermometer on the dashboard said it was 140. So I'm sure it wasn't actually that hot, but it, was sweltering like the water we had in the car. I think I opened one and it tasted like it was boiling. It was so hot. Um, yeah. Speaking of water. So there's also the story you tell about the state department handing out ice water to, uh, to folks and, but not sharing it with their CIA colleagues, which I found interesting. Yeah. There were a couple of things like that that were just really odd that I, I don't really understand why it happened. Um, you know, like risk so much to help them. And then they were being weird about giving me, you know, like an ice water. Um, and they, they did eventually. And that was the same with like dinner later, but I think, um, you know, it was sort of unnecessary, um, conflict that we really didn't need in the moment. So Sarah, then you have a long drive from the border crossing to Tunis itself and to the U S embassy there. Right. Yes, it was much longer than we thought the drive was going to be. So like I mentioned, everything just kind of took longer because we had so many vehicles, so many people. And we ended up going from the border crossing to an airfield in southern Tunisia where the Marines flew out of and um, the embassy staff, the ambassador left with them. But just that in itself took Um, Several hours, they didn't want, the Tunisians didn't want us driving on the main road in this huge convoy um, because of the threat environment in their own country. So we ended up taking back roads, which was kind of surreal because it was through these small villages where, you know, people came out and they were like waving. So at that point I did like take off the scarf and I was waving back, um, sort of like a parade. It was probably the biggest thing they'd seen in their villages for a while. Um, So we got to that Southern airfield and then, um, we had to trade out some cars, some vehicles, because we had um, to take all the armored vehicles up to the embassy in Tunis. And the um, people flew out. And then we also had dinner there, which was that other sort of weird episode where um, there wasn't enough for like me to have, but other people, it, w- it was just really weird. Um, so once we left there, we drove all the way to Tunis we had thought that we would be able to rest, that we were going to get there and we would be able to, you know, sleep in a bed for the night and have a good meal. Um, We had been up for so long by that point, it took 26 hours total before we reached Tunis. And then of course, like 
once the fighting had started, you know, I got maybe a couple hours of sleep a night, maybe. So everyone was just exhausted. We got to Tunis and we found out the U.S. ambassador to Tunis had decided that we were not allowed to stay in the country, that he wanted us to leave as soon as possible. So it was sort of um, crushing to have worked so hard and um, so thoroughly exhausted and, and spent like everything you had to get these people out safely and then be told like you have to go right now on the first available flight. So I ended up staying overnight um, and then flying out the next day. But, um, you know, that was quite traumatic to, to get there and not even have a chance to like right. breathe. Right. So, so Sarah, how did you feel, you know, big picture about the evacuation, right? The duality of getting out to safety, but the fact that we, the United States, left the country of Libya behind. I felt an overwhelming sense of loss, and it's hard to explain, um, and I try very hard in the book as well, but we have put so much into Libya, and you know, like I personally had sacrificed so much to be there. We had people who literally died there because the mission was so important that it was for our national security. And then it felt like we just gave up, that we just left and that we lost. And and it was, it was overwhelming to me. And I had a really hard time reconciling that once I got back to headquarters and um, continued to work some of the same issues um, to to disassociate that in my mind, like to be objective about Libya. Like I don't Mm -hmm. feel like I was able to do that any longer. So Sarah, you've been amazing with the story and the, and your time. Um, Just a couple more questions. Why did you decide to leave the agency at the end of the day? Um, It ultimately was because of that sense of loss. And, you know, I, there were a few times where I felt expendable. Like it felt like we had been left there to die and that that changed everything for me. And, and I know, you know, like objectively it wasn't the case, but that certainly wasn't how it felt. And in the moment, that's, that's what mattered. And I needed to do something else that, um, you know, like I'd be really valued for. So I decided to leave. Um, and ultimately now I work in emergency management. So I am grateful that I've been able to use some of these experiences to now like help my local community, which has been really great. So Sarah, the book, the book makes very clear that you are a person of deep faith. And I'm just wondering how important that was to you during that year in Tripoli in general and during the evacuation in particular. It was incredibly important to me. I think it really helped Um, with a fear. So having that faith um, that, you know, I was meant to be there, that God had a path for me, it helped give me a sense of purpose, even when things were going so horribly wrong. Um, I should have, you know, been constantly terrified. But again, I was just so focused on what I was doing that I I really wasn't able to feel it. That came later. Um, It did come, but it came later. and I just think having that sense of purpose and that integrity, um, I'd like to think 
that I was there for a reason. And it took a long time to, to be able to realize, you know, ultimately, I helped save the lives of 150 people. And, and maybe that's why I was there. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. The book is In the Dark of War. The author is Sarah Carlson. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. That was Sarah Carlson. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital edition wherever you get your books.